I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Deuteronomy chapters 14 through 16. In verses 1 and 2, we have uh, some issues about a knife. Verse 1, You're the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. And the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Now, this is a restatement of what we find in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 27 and 28, and that concerns cutting oneself. Incidentally, Jezebel's prophets of Baal practiced this strange procedure when they were trying to call fire down to ignite the altar as they competed with Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 28. It was a heathen practice that accompanied their mourning. God said no. But hundreds of years later, they seemed to be engaging in this heathen practice. We see that from references in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 6, Jeremiah 41, verse 5, and Jeremiah 47, verse 5. We find it first mentioned as part of the law in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. Notice the Hebrew status before God. It says, as a nation, they were holy. The word holy means set apart. They were a holy people. Moreover, they had been chosen by God to be a peculiar people, as in people who had been purchased. This is actually a restatement, in essence, of Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, which says, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. The Hebrews enjoyed this unique position, distinct from every other people, all the other people groups of the world, in regard to their relationship with God. Perhaps Peter was drawing terminology from this verse when he applied the same concept to New Testament Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Those two verses say, But ye, speaking of Christians, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Then we come to the next passage of Scripture, verses 3 through 21. And it talks about things that you can eat and things that you can't eat, if you're a Jew, of course. Verse 3, Thou shalt not eat any abominable thing. These are the beasts which ye shall eat, the ox, the sheep, and the goat, the hart, and the roebuck, and the fallow deer, and the wild goat, and the pygarg, and the wild ox, and the chamois, and every beast that parteth the hoof, and cleaveth the cleft unto the claws, and cheweth the cud among the beasts, that ye shall eat. Nevertheless, these ye shall not eat of them that chew the cud, or of them that divide the cloven hoof, as the camel, and the hare, and the coney. For they chew the cud, but divide not the hoof, therefore they are unclean unto you. 
and the swine, because it divideth the hoof, yet cheweth not the cud, it is unclean unto you. Ye shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their dead carcass. These ye shall eat of all that are in the waters, all that have fins and scales shall ye eat. And whatsoever hath not fins and scales ye may not eat, it is unclean unto you. Of all clean birds ye shall eat, but these are they which ye shall not eat, the eagle, and the ostrich, and the osprey, and the gleed, and the kite, and the vulture after his kind, and every raven after his kind, and the owl, and the nighthawk, and the cuckoo, and the hawk after his kind, the little owl, and the great owl, and the swan, and the pelican, and the gear eagle, and the cormorant, and the stork, and the heron after her kind, and the lapwing, and the bat, and every creeping thing that flieth is unclean unto you. They shall not be eaten. But of all clean fowls ye may eat. Ye shall not eat of anything that dieth of itself. Thou shalt give it unto the stranger that is in thy gates, that he may eat it. Or thou mayest sell it unto an alien, for thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. Well, these verses give a basic outline of food that may or may not be eaten by the Hebrews. In the first eight verses, we see it talks about land creatures, and then verses 9 and 10, water creatures, and then in verses 11 through 20, air creatures. Now, today, observant Jews have a rather sophisticated system of foods that they call kosher and non-kosher foods. This is more rabbinic tradition than it is scripture from the Torah or from the Old Testament, it's a system that's been handed down and added to through the ages by the uh, by the rabbis. Now, who would even consider, by the way, in verse 13, eating a kite? Well, remove the sticks first if you're going to do that. Well, actually, a kite is a medium-sized member of the hawk family. So what if a clean animal dies a natural death? Well, here it very specifically states that you cannot eat it. It's interesting, though that it can be given to a non-Hebrew to eat or even sold to a stranger, according to verse 21. The laws regarding foods were given in Leviticus chapter 11 also. You'll notice that with regard to four-footed animals, that the big indicator there is in the hoof and the cud chewing. Leviticus chapter 11, as well as in this passage, do list the entire extent of kosher practice for observant Jews today. That's simply all you find in Scripture on it. Everything else that has been added has been, as I mentioned earlier, rabbinic tradition. This designation of meat that's unclean is not new here. You recall that Adam and Eve apparently started out as vegetarians in Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 to 30. Yet when Noah was loading the ark with animals, God gave specific ark-loading instructions to Noah regarding clean and unclean animals in Genesis chapter 7, verse 2. It's actually not until after the ark experience that we see the first occurrence of a meat diet per God's instructions in Genesis chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. That was part of the Noahic covenant. So the differentiation of which animals are okay to eat or not actually goes all the way back to Noah. Today, observant Jews work from a more extensive rabbinical list of foods that has been embellished through oral tradition over the centuries. I mentioned that earlier. For that reason, many Messianic Christians observe what they call kosher, but in the context of Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14, rather than the entire rabbinical tradition. This practice is typically differentiated as Torah kosher 
and not rabbinical kosher. The reference to cooking in a, a goat in the mother's milk in verse 21 was also seen in Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, and again in Exodus 34:26. No one knows the background regarding the heathen practice for which this law was designed to prevent. Now, the way this has been applied by observant Jews through the centuries is they have expanded on this law and declaring that it's not lawful to prepare meat with milk products at all. From the strict wording of the two passages, that appears to be an embellishment of the intent here. Now, we have some verses on tithing beginning in chapter 14, verse 22. Thou shalt surely tithe all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth year by year. And thou shalt eat before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose to place his name there, the tithe of thy corn, of thy wine, of thine oil, and the firstlings of thy herds and of thy flocks, that thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. And if the way be too long for thee, so that thou art not able to carry it, or if the place be too far from thee, which the Lord thy God shall choose to set his name there, when the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, then shalt thou turn it into money, and bind up the money in thine hand, and shalt go into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen, or for sheep, or for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth, and thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice thou and thine household. And the Levite that is within thy gates, thou shalt not forsake him, for he hath no part nor inheritance with thee. At the end of three years thou shalt bring forth all the tithe of thine increase the same year, and shall lay it up within thy gates. And the Levite, because he hath no part nor inheritance with thee, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, which are within thy gates, shall come, and shall eat, and be satisfied, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hand which thou doest. Now, if you'd like to see more tithing scripture, then look at my written notes on BibleTrack.org for today's reading, and you'll see a list of other verses that deal with tithing in the Old Testament. You'll observe that Numbers chapter 18, verses 21 to 32, clearly establishes that the Levites will be supported by the rest of Israel with their tithes and other offerings. Twelve tribes, 600,000 men, that would maintain some 22,000 Levites back in the days that they were wandering in the wilderness. And those 22,000 Levites were supported by the other 600,000 men. Now, there's a provision regarding this tithe that's not set in the specifications found in either Leviticus chapter 27, nor is it found in Numbers chapter 18. That provision is seen here in verse 23, and it says this, And thou shalt eat before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose to place his name there. Obviously, it would be impossible to eat 10% of one's three-year yield in the space of a few days. This must be a reference to a meal that accompanies the bringing of the tithe to a designated location. The cycle of three years means that there are two three-year cycles before the sabbatical year. We'll talk about that sabbatical year in a few moments. Interestingly enough, this word tithe, meaning 10%, it's not used in the New Testament, nor is the concept of a fixed percentage for giving used. However, for believers, giving that which is proportional to one's income is certainly taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. 
Furthermore, rather than being mandated by law, giving in the New Testament is to be freely given as an expression of our love toward God, and we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. We also see in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, that our giving should go to support those ministries that teach us the Word of God. Like the Levites, the New Testament standard establishes that those who teach the Word of God as their livelihood are appropriately supported by the offerings of those receiving this teaching. And that's seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. I think it's important to emphasize that giving to the Lord should be a product of victorious Christian living. A Christian's giving should not be done out of feelings of guilt or superstition. Of course, New Testament churches need funds to operate. Everybody knows that. But God leads His Spirit-led people to give, sometimes sacrificially toward the support of the ministries that feed them. Therefore, the support of the local church, well, it ought to be the result of a supernatural, God-directed, Holy Spirit-led superstition-free, guilt-free act of love on the part of victorious Christians. Now we come to chapter 15, and we'll be talking about the sabbatical year, the time when we release the debt and release the slaves. Verse 1, At the end of every seven years thou shalt make a release, and this is the matter of the release. Every creditor that lendeth aught unto his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner thou mayest exact it again, but that which is thine with thy brother thine hand shall release, save when there shall be no poor among you. For the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it. Only if thou carefully hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all these commandments which I command thee this day. For the Lord thy God blesseth thee, as he promised thee, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow. And thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother." But thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend unto him sufficient for his need, and that which he wanteth. Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and that I be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him not, and he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee. Thou shalt surely give him... And thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him, because that for this thing the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy works, and in all that thou puttest thine hand unto. For the poor shall never cease out of the land, therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in thy land. And if thy brother, an Hebrew man, or an Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee, and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. And when thou sendest him out free from thee, thou shalt not let him go away empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock, and out of thy floor, and out of thy winepress, of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. 
Therefore I command thee this thing today. And it shall be, if he say unto thee, I will not go away from thee, because he loveth thee and thine house, because he is well with thee, then thou shalt take an awl and thrust it through his ear into the door, and he shall be thy servant forever. And also unto thy maidservant thou shalt do likewise. It shall not seem hard unto thee when thou sendest him away free from thee, for he hath been worth a double hired servant to thee in serving thee six years, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all that thou doest. In that seventh year, any money you had loaned to a fellow Hebrew was to be forgotten, I mean forgiven. Now you can see that this might lead to the temptation not to lend money to the needy in that sixth year. Well, that's addressed in verse 9, and it's listed here as a sin. As a matter of fact, loaning money to Hebrews was not a very lucrative business under the Mosaic law at all. According to Leviticus 23, 35-37, we'll listen to what it says. And if thy brother be waxen poor and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him. Yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee, take thou no usury of him or increase, but fear thy God, that thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. Well, then we see also in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 20, it says, Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all that thou settest thine hand to in the land whither thou goest to possess it. As a matter of fact, in talking about the characteristics of the righteous, we read in Psalm chapter 15, verse 5, it says this, He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. So we see that it was a provision of the law that you just didn't take interest from your fellow Jewish brethren for money that you may loan them. Oh, and here's something else about that sabbatical year. Your Hebrew slaves go free in that sabbatical year also. Along with money, you must give them to start their lives all over again. What if the Hebrew slave decides he or she want to stay? Ouch! Verse 17 shows the original pierced ear with an awl. You'll notice that the breaks given in this chapter are for the Hebrews only. Foreigners received no such consideration, not with regard to loaning money and not with regard to freedom for slaves in the seventh year or sabbatical year. One popular misuse of the terminology uh, is that of bondservant or bondman. A lot of Christians misuse this when they're talking about bondmen and bondservants. The Hebrew slave who chooses to remain after his six years of servitude does go through the procedure with the all through the ear, as also seen in Exodus chapter 21, verse 6. But he's never referred to, not then, not anywhere, as a bondservant. That term bondservant is used to describe a non-Hebrew slave or Hebrew slaves who were enslaved by non-Hebrews. The Hebrew man who chooses to leave servitude after his commitment may leave with what he brought into his servitude, but we find in Exodus chapter 21, not with the wife and children who may have been awarded to him during the six years by his master. That is when he may choose to stay himself past his specified commitment. It's interesting that the poor of the Hebrew community got a fresh start every seven years according to this law. As a matter of fact, it was 
the previous slave owner who was responsible for providing this good start to his former slave. We see that in verses 13 and 14. We don't know how well the Hebrews complied with this slave release uh, provision of the sabbatical year. We're told in Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 14, it says, At the end of seven years, let ye go every man his brother in Hebrew, which hath been sold unto thee. And when he hath served thee six years, thou shalt let him go free from thee. But your fathers hearken not unto me, neither incline their ears. Well, from Jeremiah's passage right here, we do know that compliance was an issue in at least some part of Israel's history. Now, if you'd like to get more insight regarding Israel's keeping of the sabbatical year over the centuries, see the written notes on BibleTrack.org for Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. In verses 19 to 23, we have laws concerning firstborn animals. Verse 19, All the firstling males that come of thy herd and of thy flock thou shalt sanctify unto the Lord thy God. Thou shalt do no work with the firstling of thy bullock, nor shear the firstling of thy sheep. Thou shalt eat it before the Lord thy God year by year in the place which the Lord shall choose, thou and thy household. And if there be any blemish therein, as if it be lame or blind or have any ill blemish, thou shalt not sacrifice it unto the Lord thy God. Thou shalt eat it within thy gates, the unclean and the clean person shall eat it alike, as the roebuck and as the heart. Only thou shalt not eat the blood thereof, thou shalt pour it upon the ground as water. Well, the firstborn of anything had a very special place in Israel, according to Exodus chapter 13. Immediately out of Egypt, God set apart the firstborn men, but later substituted the whole tribe of Levi in their places in Numbers chapter 3. In this passage, the sacrifice of firstborn animals without blemish is once again emphasized. Interestingly enough, the firstborn of the flock was to be eaten in the place which the Lord shall choose. That emphasis is also made in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 18. That brings us to chapter 16, and we talk about keeping the feast or the festivals. Now, I've provided a complete table of the festivals um, under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. You can go there and read all about it. Observe the month of Abib. And keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God, for in the month of Abib the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. Thou shalt therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the Lord thy God of the flock and the herd, in the place which the Lord shall choose to place his name there. Thou shalt eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread therewith, even the bread of affliction, for thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt in haste, that thou mayest remember the day when thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of thy life. And there shall be no leavened bread seen with thee in thy coast seven days. Neither shall there anything of the flesh which thou sacrificest the first day at even remain all night until the morning. Thou mayest not sacrifice the Passover within any of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee, but at the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name in. There thou shalt sacrifice the Passover at even, at the going down of the sun, and the season that thou camest forth out of Egypt. And thou shalt roast and eat it in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose, that thou shalt turn in the morning, and go unto thy tents. Six days thou shalt eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord thy God, thou shalt do no work therein." 
Seven weeks shalt thou number unto thee. Begin to number the seven weeks from the such time as thou beginnest to put the sickle to the corn. And thou shalt keep the feast of weeks unto the Lord thy God with the tribute of a freewill offering of thine hand, which thou shalt give unto the Lord thy God according as the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. And thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant, and the Levite which is within thy gates, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are among you in the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name there. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, that thou shalt observe and do these statutes. Thou shalt observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days, after that thou hast gathered in thy corn and thy wine. And thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant, and the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow that are within thy gates. Seven days shalt thou keep a solemn feast unto the Lord thy God in the place which the Lord shall choose. Because the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thine increase, and in all the works of thine hands, therefore thou shalt surely rejoice. Three times in a year shall thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of unleavened bread, and in the feast of weeks, and in the feast of tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord thy God which he hath given thee. The month of Abib, in verse 1, is the same as the month of Nisan. Abib is not really the proper name of the month, but really means the month of young ears of grain. After the Babylonian captivity, they began calling the month Nisan. This falls in the March-April time frame, and it's the beginning of the Jewish calendar year. The beginning is based on lunar cycles. That being the case, the Jewish calendar doesn't track equivalently to our Roman calendar. In other words, Nisan 14, Passover day, falls on a different Roman calendar day each year. Under the rules of the observational lunar calendars used in Bible times, Nisan 1 would fall on the day when the moon first appeared after it was determined to be spring. Technically speaking, that would be the spring equinox. But their observation of the signs of spring were not nearly so precise as to determine that, so other signs of nature provided those indications. When appropriate, to sink it back to the spring equinox, a 13th month was added to the end of the previous year. So you see, if you track your birthday by the Jewish calendar each year, the date on our Roman calendar would vary by as much as four weeks or so. Not bad. Two parties, two cakes, two birthday presents. If you'd like more information on the Jewish calendar, then look under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, and I've written a whole article for it there to show you how exactly it was calculated. Three of the Jewish festivals are outlined here in verses 1 through 17. These are the festivals when they were together centrally each year. The first is the Passover feast, also accompanied by the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verses 1 through 8. Then the Feast of Weeks in verses 9 through 12, and then the Feast of Booths, sometimes known as Tabernacles, in verses 13 through 17. If you'd like to see more about that, then look at the article I've written under the topic section of BibleTrack.org on the Jewish festivals. Now keep in mind the Hebrews are on the east side of the Jordan River preparing to go over into Canaan when Deuteronomy here is being written and being spoken and given to the Israelites. 
Some changes are in order here. A pilgrimage back to a central location is specified three times each year. It's interesting that originally the Passover feast was to be celebrated within one's own home. However, here we see that with the changing circumstances, this Passover feast was to be done at a central location. It's here that the practice of many Jews of merging the Passover feast with that of the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place. We see that in Jesus' day, some people observed the Passover feast separately and some did not. Now, if you'd like more information regarding the distinction between the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover day, and why some people in Jesus' day observed Passover on Nisan 15 and others on Nisan 14, then look at the article that I've written under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled, What's the Correct Day to Observe the Passover? And you can also find it on the written notes of today's reading. And then in verses 18 through 20, we're going to talk about judges, judges in Israel. Verse 18, Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. Thou shalt not rest judgment, thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift, for a gift of the blind the eyes of the wise, and pervert the words of the righteous. That which is altogether just shalt thou follow, that thou mayest live and inherit the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. All right, let's just head this potential problem off right now from the beginning. As a friend of mine says, it's not the money, it's the money. Or as verse 19 here puts it, for a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. So no bribing judges and no giving judges gifts. That's specified clearly here in verses 18 to 20. And then we've got that Baal-looking practice with the trees in verses 21 and 22, the last two verses of chapter 16. Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt make thee. Neither shalt thou set thee up any image which the Lord thy God hateth. Now this was a typical setting for the altars of the heathen to Baal. Don't do anything, he's telling the Jews. Don't do anything that even looks like that heathen practice. The word grove in the King James Version comes from the proper Hebrew name Asherah. It's a Phoenician goddess, the female counterpart to Baal, by the way. Asherah first shows up in Scripture all the way back in Exodus chapter 34, verse 13. And Baal shows up in Numbers chapter 22, verse 41 for the first time. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton. 